0: Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machadoz. And boy, do we have a special guest? My man, Morgan Housel is in the house. What's up, man? Good to see you, Darius. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I've, I've been so pumped. The minute I saw you book for the show, I was like doing cartwheels, even though I'm not good at them. And it, it, was, it was one of those moments, man. So I'm so pumped to have you here to talk about all the cool things you're doing. Um, Hopefully,
1: you didn't throw your back out, but I appreciate it.
0: You know, I've been working. I've been doing a lot of like like Romanian deadlifts, so I'm doing pretty well there. But yeah, good. no, it was it was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you mind if I do a little bit of a housekeeping and we'll get started? Let's do it. Let's do it, guys. For listeners who are new to the show, the uh, greatness machine. We're about two things: people are living their passions and those creating greatness in the, in the world. And doing so despite the odds. And my man Morgan here is neither short of passion or greatness. So uh, I'm going to give some background here. Um, Morgan doesn't know this, but I'm a, I'm kind of a bookworm. I, I'm on my, so last year I, I started reading pretty aggressively and I, I read, I think I did 35 books last year. One of the books of which I'm going to show in the video was his book, The Psychology of Money. One of the themes for me last year was, was money. So I was reading a lot of books on money. I read Happy Money. I read The Psychology of Money and uh, I loved the book. I was like, man, I, I was referring your book to a ton of people, uh, in, in the, the different worlds I run in. And uh, and so this year I'm like, all right, man. I I, I hit 35 books last year. I got like, what am I gonna do this year? So I I started. I said I'll do you know I'll do 40, and then I was like, no, no, fuck that. I'm doing 52. I'm doing 52 books in 52 weeks. So I'm on my 52nd book right now. I'm finishing the the new Elon Musk book. Which uh, have, you, have you read that book?
1: Uh, no, it's 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 on my list, but I've yeah.
0: Man, definitely familiar a, with it. He is a crazy. D- <laughs> He is a crazy ass dude. Like I like I thought, you know, you'll, everyone knows he's a little bit weird, but like it, I, I, I have actually met him in real life and I thought he was weird then. And now I think he's way weirder after reading the book, but great book. Highly recommend it. Uh, but your book, another one of the books made the list this year. And so I'm really stoked to have you here today um, to talk about your new book, Same as Ever. So we're going to be talking about that. First of all, congratulations on the book, man. It's an awesome book. I loved reading it. Thank you um and so you know I, i'm gonna tell you this right now i'm gonna i'm gonna pump your go up a little bit so there's certain re- uh, books like like authors that you know that are, are out there uh I, I would say like ryan holiday is one of the ones on my list you're now one of the ones on my list where like when you put out a book i'm like oh i gotta go read his new book because this guy just freaking crushes when he writes books so um yeah man really pumped to talk about the book uh, before we do talk about the new book, do you mind if I do a little bit of um, giving your formal bio for listeners who maybe not familiar with your work and uh, we get a little bit of your background? Is that cool? Yes. Yep, let's do it. So you guys, uh, for those of you that are familiar with Morgan, he goes, I don't need to give too much of an introduction. But, but for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with Morgan, you got to like crawl out from under the rock and uh and go pay t- attention to to the world out there because this, this man's doing some cool stuff so as i mentioned before author of psychology money uh we're gonna be talking about his new book same as ever a guide to what what never changes which i absolutely loved he's the host of the morgan housel podcast very popular podcast partner at the collaborative fund two-time winner of the biz, uh, best in business awards from the society of american business editors and writers he also serves on, on the board of directors at markel so um if you don't mind, look, here at The Greatness Machine, you know, we love origin stories. I mean, most people don't just like, you know, wake up and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go write a bunch of badass books and like, crush it in business. Morgan obviously uh, got there how he, how he got there, but would love to hear some of your origin story if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, in my teenage and early and early college years. I was uh, I wanted to be an investment banker or a hedge fund manager, and kind of in the era, the early and mid two thousands, every like young ambitious man wanted to do that. It's very different now, but back then, there were like at least in my circles, there was nothing more appealing than becoming like an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. Like that to me was like the pinnacle of life, and so I went through all throughout college wanting to do that. I graduated college in two thousand eight which was a terrible time to graduate because the world was on fire. The economy was broken and melting down. And nobody in finance was hiring. Every bank, every hedge fund, everyone was laying people off, let alone like nobody's hiring. And so out of desperation is what it was, I got a job as a writer about stocks at The Motley Fool. And never in my life did I aspire to be a writer. Did I admire writers? Did I think it would be a fun job? I did it because I needed a paycheck. Full stop. And they were the only people who were hiring. And I think for the first year, it felt like a job. Like I was always very interested in finance. So like, lucky me that I get to write about stocks now during this period of upheaval where was so much to write about. So that was cool. But I never wanted to be a writer. Definitely didn't think of myself as a journalist and still don't. But it, I think after about a year, I really started to enjoy it. Like I love the process of analyzing what's going on in the world, trying to make sense of it, learning something, and then trying to tell a story about it for other people to learn about. That, like, it became a really interesting thing. I also thought it was great that I was not in the trenches, so to speak. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a fund manager. I'm not an economist. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not a journalist. I'm just a guy who for the last 18 years or so has tried to make sense of the financial world, tried to learn something and then tried to write a story about it. That's that's always what it's, what it's been. And so over the years, I just really fell in love with the process of writing, with the process of storytelling, trying to be succinct in the writing. It was never part of the plan. It was just a serendipitous kind of stumbled into this job and ended up falling in love with it.
0: That's so funny. I feel like that's... That's probably most people's stories. They just end up in like in the becoming an insurance broker instead. So (laughs) they're they're like they're like got lucky, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just stumbled into like writing awesome books. Like no, I I stumbled into like you know like like working as an admin at a construction company.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Fair enough. But I do think to me it always contrasts with I like everyone else in college was like I'm going to be an X and this is my mm -hmm. path to get there. And by the time you're 40 and looking back, you're like maybe one out of 50 of those people actually followed that path. The rest stumbled haphazardly into whatever they're doing.
0: It's so true. Like, like when kids are like, I I was, I was actually getting a ride home from an Uber driver two nights ago. I was, I was in Southern California for, for Thanksgiving. I live in Austin, Texas now. And, um, she's telling me about her 17 year old daughter and how she's, you know, going to, she, she wants to go to Cambridge and then she's going to join the FBI. This is the mom telling me this, all this shit. And I'm like, I'm like, none of that's going to happen. No, no, I was, uh, <laughs> right. I'm, like, right. I'm, like, right. I'm like, I was humoring her. I'm like, really? I'm like, what part of the FBI she want to join? Oh, you know, she is not sure. Maybe she might do CIA instead. And I'm like planning people, people, when kids plan their lives in their twenties, I'm like, dude, listen, I, I, are you a fan of uh, Naval Ravikant at all? You, yeah, of course. Yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah actually you, yeah, I think you quoted him in your book a little bit. Um, yeah. So I, I uh, I'm a huge Naval fan and uh you know he, he has some really interesting insights on this. He's like, look, like what industry you choose, you know, where you live, what city you choose to live in, and like who you decide to date are like the three things that have the biggest determination of like how successful you'll be, right? So proximity is a big deal. What what yeah. so do you what what was it about
1: proximity for you and writing? Were you always a writer? Was this something that No, like, I was I was never a writer. I mean, I have back to the origin story. My teenage years were really, were really crazy too. I effectively did not go to high school. I was a competitive ski racer in Lake Tahoe, California. And I and my the rest of my peers did an independent study program. That was an utter joke. It allowed us to ski six days a week. And when I was 16, after doing nothing, they gave us a piece of paper that said diploma at the top of it, but we did nothing for it. We did absolutely nothing. So then I started college when I was 20 and I effectively had an eighth grade education And, and I needed to make up all of that ground. I started in the most remedial courses at community college to make up for it. And so, But anyways, that's a long way of saying like, no, I was never a writer. I could, I could write my name <laughs> and, and a few other things. When I started as a professional writer, I was an economics major in college, which was not a writing-centric major either. It's a very no. math-based. Based, so I had zero writing background when I started as a professional writer, and, and it was really hard at first. Uh, I, I, had to, I had to make up for a lot of lost time, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. So, so, we, so did you grow up in Tahoe? Yes, I grew up in Truckee. Really? Truckee, okay. And where'd you go? Is it Sierra College up there? Is that there?
1: I went to Sierra College in Truckee, and then I went to University of Nevada Reno for about a year, and then I transferred to USC in Southern California, which is where where I got my degree.
0: That's so so, the kids who who are listening out there. I doubt if uh, maybe your parents were saying you're going to go to Cambridge and join the FBI, but, but, but doesn't sound like it, right? Like that's a pretty secure to it, circuitous, maybe I'm not great with words, but like path to getting to the Motley Fool. So, so you ended up transferring from UN uh, University of Nevada, Reno um, and is
1: your folks, are they still up in the Reno area? Uh they, they live in Northern California near Mendocino.
0: Yeah. Oh cool. Okay. I, I lived in San Francisco for seventeen years. And I got a lot of friends in the, the Truckee and Reno area. Um yeah. and so um I anyway, I digress. And so how so so when you, you transfer, why why did you choose S C? Were you like a s like great program oh, I, I mean, have this a good is, business I school? Mean-
1: No, you want to talk about um, serendipity, stumbling haphazard. I had a bad breakup in Truckee, as everyone does when they're age 20. And I thought my (laughs) life was over, as everyone does when they break up. And because I needed to just get out of town and start fresh, I had a friend living in Orange County. And he was like, come on down here. I thought I would move there for six months and come back, but I ended up staying. And then once you're in Southern California, you're just exposed to the USC cult that exists in Southern totally. California, so when it was like, okay, now I need to, I need to go to a good, a good school. Now I applied to Pepperdine and USC, and that was it. And then so that was how I ended up there. It was yeah. a total accident, mistake in itself.
0: That's so funny. My mom's, my mom did her grad. She's a grad. Same story. She like moved from Pennsylvania to SoCal and was like going to Cal State Fullerton and ends up getting her graduate degree at SC. So I'm a, I'm a Trojan family. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. All the way the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/darius, all lowercase. That's D A R I U S. Go to shopify.com/darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/darius Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. So, So when you decided to get in the right, like again, 08 was a brutal year to graduate college. You finished college. It looked like you were writing though before that for the Motley Fool. Did you start writing in college, like, or was it a uh, after college thing? Like, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, they hired me full time when I was uh, in my senior year, and um, because it's a contract work, you can do it anywhere. You can do it remotely, and you know, it's not a nine to five job. It's just turn in your articles when you're when you're done with them. So I I started full time, uh, just in my last semester of my senior year. Yeah.
0: And, and so, so having like dove in, did you find that I have a talent for writing or I really liked like being kind of a commentator on, on what's happening? What, what part of writing and finance like really went hand in hand for you? What was it that like really sparked it? Was it the interest in, in, in finance and just the talent for writing? Like what was it? The chicken or the egg on that?
1: I think I was always, I, I had been interested in finance for a long time. And I would say beyond interest, I was obsessed with it. And particularly like the value investing Warren Buffett crowd. My wife always says when we met, when we were you know 20, uh, I had Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters on my nightstand kind of thing, which I feel like not, not many 20-year-olds would. So like that was always in my blood. The investing side, like I had no... Uh, I had no fears that I didn't have the material or the, or the knowledge back then. Not to say that I knew everything I was wrong about a lot, but I, I, I had the confidence that I can talk about investing to a public crowd. The writing aspect of it was completely new to me and terrifying, utterly terrifying to me, particularly for online writing at a platform where a lot of people are going to read this. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people are going to read every post. And in online writing, particularly back in the days of the comment section, if it's not good, people will tell you in no uncertain terms how <laughs> dumb and bad and terrible you are. And they did. And that hurt, man. It was it was tough to be 22, have no idea what I'm doing, stumbled into this job that I don't deserve. And now 10,000 people are, are calling me terrible names online because of it. Like, that was hard. And look, you have you, you have to grow a thick skin as uh, if you're putting out content online because people are going to say terrible things, you just have to deal with it. But at first it was really tough. And that I think if there's anything that almost made me quit, it was probably that. It was early on like but but also when I look back in hindsight, when people give you that stark of feedback, you improve very quickly too. Because if you write something and people are like you're wrong and you're and you're a bad writer, that naturally you're going to be like, okay, well, how can I learn from that and try to get better? And the feedback cycle is so stark and so fast yeah. that even if, if you do that for six months, you're going to get way better, way, way better, super quickly. Even if it's painful, it's the best way to learn.
0: And so, so you're writing for, and, and I love that, 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 that feedback cycles is definitely like, Oh, I wrote something amazing and you just get like, hammered on it and you're like, Oh, no. maybe it wasn't amazing. What the, So I, I think that's important in all in all like, like, businesses or or jobs is like, how can I get that open-minded feedback loop so I can like, you know, harden up quickly, even in sports, right? Like getting that feedback loop in sports, like you're a competitive ski racer, you know, the mountain gives you feedback real quickly, right? You know, it'll, it'll, and, it'll throw
1: and, you on your ass if you're doing it wrong. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's funny, like we live in a society now where a, people don't always get that feedback or they don't want that harsh feedback. I, I do think that there's a delivery of it that, that helps, right? So to your point with the the mountain doesn't care, it's, it just crushes you and, 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 and you get that feedback. So for you, when, when did you have that moment where you're like, all right, man. I think I can do this. Like, I'm um, like you getting a lot of feedback. Some of it good, some of it bad. But when was the moment where you are like, "Yeah, this is how I want to spend my time"?
2: I think.
1: I think w- within six months, I had some sense of, "Oh, I'm actually not bad at this. I don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm not bad at it." <laughs> and then it was, it was probably. But, but my assumption when I started was, "I'm going to be really bad at this." <laughs> that was my my wow. assumption. And so, even just not sucking was like, "Oh, that's this kind of interesting." And, but it was probably not until I'd been doing it for a couple years, four years, maybe even five years before it was like, not only do I enjoy this, but I think I'm pretty good at it. And I, and, and this is, this is all I want to do. I can't imagine doing anything else, but that probably took five years of doing it. I think the chip on my shoulder of I wanted to be a hedge fund manager and now I'm a blogger, <laughs> like that uh... chip on my shoulder took a long time to brush off. Now it's fully brushed off. And now the idea of being a hedge fund manager would be utterly repulsive to me. Um, Interesting. It it took a long time, but it was never. And also I would say there was no like aha moment. It was a very slow realization that this is what I wanted to do. And honestly, when I wrote my first book, which came out in 2020. So at that point, I had been a a professional writer for 13 years. And I think that if there was any aha moment that like, I'm a writer, this is what I'm going to do. It was then. It took 13 years to get there.
0: Yeah, well, there's a, a, have you ever heard, uh, you know, Adrian Brody, the Academy Award winner? Yeah. His dad's, he, when he won his Academy Award, his dad said it, it take, uh, it took 13 years to become an overnight success. Right. right. So, it's
1: always it's always the case. For anyone who you look up to, even if it seems like they have quick success, it's like behind the scenes is decades of, of torture and pain to get there. Totally.
0: It's that, that iceberg like like poster people have in their office where it like shows the tip of the iceberg and then you see it goes down like two miles under the under the ocean. It's like it's you always know, what that's it what is. you don't see, you know. That's the uh, like, like getting crushed when you're in 07, like not being able to get a job out of college, like sucking. You know, like, you know, like no one no one sees that. They just see like, oh, he wrote this great book. And he's popular now. Like, like, oh, totally. that's great. You know, I love yep. that. Well, let's talk about the new book, man. Like, like, first of all, I, I love the book. It, it's just like it, it was such an interesting approach. So, so the new book is same as ever, a guide to what never changes. So, first of all, I was like, this is a really interesting perspective. Which is, we hear about the, you know the world's changing faster and faster around us, and there's always so much change. And you kind of went inside out on this and said, hey. I'm going to talk about the things that never change, and yeah. I was like, "That I was like, that's a really interesting process, like th- thing to think about." To, to walk us through, like, what, the book. Why did you decide to write it? I'd love to hear
1: a little bit of, of the backstory there. Well, thanks. It's always been interesting to me as like a student and fan of history that when you're reading history about something that happened a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago you're 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 automatically going to notice the things that are different how life has changed how technology has changed but to me the most interesting thing is reading about what people used to do a long time ago in the past and being like we just we do the same thing today you change the dates on this from 1823 to 2023 and all of these words would have fit right in that those are the moments of reading history where you're like that's really important if you find something that has not changed in hundreds of years you found something that is extremely important because you know it's going to be part of your future. If it hasn't changed in a thousand years, it's not going to change over the next thousand years. And so you can't say that about politics. You can't say it about technology. You can't say about different industries. You can say it about all kinds of different human behaviors that have never changed. How people respond to greed and fear and risk and opportunity, tribalism. These things have not changed in a thousand years or more. And so you know, you know this is going to be part of your future. A lot of this too was my kind of frustration in the financial industry over how bad we are at predicting the next recession, the next bear market, whatever it might be. Nobody can do it. There's no track record of people doing it. And so for me, it was, okay, stop trying to focus on what you think is going to change because we can't do it. Stop pretending that you can. And instead, let's focus all of our energy on what we know is not going to change. That's going to give us a much clearer view of what the future will be for us. And so looking back at a lot of what I wrote and was interested in, like those are the dots that I connected is I was always interested in in behaviors that never changed. And once you come up with enough of these little anecdotes and stories and examples, it was like, ah, this is, this is the book that I want to write and need to write.
0: Yeah. It's, it's such, it's so interesting. And and like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a numbers geek. And so as I started like diving into the book, there was just some some data points so i'm like huh you know like 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 who would have thought of that and like one of the, one of the coolest data points i loved in the book was talking about like how the impossible happens millions of times right that like a one in a billion chance happens millions of times because you have 100 billion humans have lived and 1.2 billion days days that they've lived or 1.2 million was it was at 1.2 million billion days that they've lived so you start looking at stuff like that and you're like Oh wow. Like like he's right. Like like kind of like everything has happened or can happen and 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 I love the, the really the perspective around certainty, what people really want. So th- that there was there were some really cool concepts in there. I'd love if you wouldn't mind, you know, and 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 I know that obviously if you don't mind like kind of break down how you structured the book cuz I thought the structure of the book was unique and interesting and I think it's it's something that really a kept my attention, which is it, which I think says a lot. <laughs> and B um, was was a really interesting way to kind of break down this idea of teaching people like what doesn't change.
1: Yeah, I mean the the book is structured as twenty three very short stories. By very <laughs> short, it's you know the average book chapter in an average nonfiction book is probably five to seven thousand words. The average chapter in in my books is is two thousand, so much shorter. A lot of that was everybody knows, particularly in nonfiction, that most nonfiction books are too long. They could have been a long magazine article that explained their topic, but extend. Uh, it, but in, in, instead they're just extended out to 250 pages, rambling on the same topic. To me, the only way to combat that is basically a book of essays, all of which could live independently. You can start this book on chapter 18 if you want. You can jump right in because every chapter lives on its own. And also my writing style has always been... Get like, what's your point? Get to the point and get out of the reader's way, out of respect for the reader. Because, you know, the average nonfiction book is 70,000 words. You do not need 70,000 words to explain most topics. So what's your point? Make your point and move on. Be done with it out of respect for the reader. So I've always been, A, uh, very interested in storytelling because that's what people remember. That's what's interested. That's what's, what's interesting. And B, how can I make this as short as possible? And short doesn't necessarily mean that, like, you're not going deep, that you're not covering the topic. It just, it's, it's, there, there's a great quote, I think, from Mark Twain where he said, when you're writing, leave out the parts that readers tend to skip, which is like, that's, yes, that's, that's what you should do. And everybody knows when you're reading a book that you get to a paragraph or even a whole chapter, but you're like, I don't, I, I don't, I, I could skip this. I don't need to read this. Leave that part out and just like give you the meat and move on. So that's why I have stories that could live independently rather than rambling on one topic. And they're short chapters. I want to make my point and move on to the next.
0: So, so I, you know, when I bring folks on the show to talk about their books, especially new books, I, and I should have asked you this offline, but here we are online. Um, are there any parts, are there any questions that are off limits on the book? I, I, I want to make sure I don't spoil the book for readers. I, I want to no. make sure I respect that with you. All right.
1: No, let's go so, for it.
0: So you start off the book, like, like, with some a really personal story uh, about you know ski particularly about you and some friends skiing, um you know how did that how did, I'd love to kind of like talk a little bit about that because I feel like that kind of set the stage for the book itself. Do you mind like talking a little bit about that experience and how it set the stage for for what this book really like represents
1: yeah, so the 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 abbreviated story of this of what i what I start with in the chapter is as I said, I grew up ski racing in Lake tahoe, and in in two thousand and one we were we were seventeen years old. Myself and two of my best friends, Brendan Allen and Brian Richmond, were skiing out of bounds at Squaw Valley where you duck under the ropes that say do not cross and you ski out of bounds because that's where all the great skiing is. And when we get to the bottom, when you ski out of bounds, there's no chair left at the bottom. You you went out of bounds. So we would have to hitchhike back. We would ski ski until we hit a backcountry road and then we'd hitchhike back. So the three of us did it that morning. And then when we got back to Squaw, after we hitchhiked back, Brendan and Brian said, hey, let's go do it again. Let's go ski that again. And I I didn't want to, I I didn't want to do it for whatever reason. I just, I was just, I I think probably the hitchhiking freaked me out. I didn't like that. So I said, Hey, rather than doing it again, you guys go do it. And instead of hitchhiking, I'll drive my truck around and pick you up. And then like, we're all set. We made our plan, went our separate ways. Brent and Brian went skiing to do the run again. I went to pick them up. 20 minutes later, I go to pick them up and they're not there. And I didn't really think that much of it. Like people were very comfortable being out of communication before cell phones that we had. So I I really didn't worry, bother me that much. But as the hours went on, people started realizing like something has happened. Nobody knows where Brendan and Brian are. More hours went on. We eventually got search and rescue involved. Search and rescue got on the mountain at about midnight, I think it was during a horrendous blizzard. They had these giant floodlights. And when they entered the out of bounds area that I told them we were skiing in, they said it looked like half the mountain had been torn away from what was very clearly a fresh, enormous, massive avalanche that had just hit this area. So they began searching for this area. Uh, I'm sure they're put, putting two and two together at this point. After about nine hours of searching, the the search dogs kind of honed in on a spot in the avalanche field and the rescuers found Brendan and Brian dead in the avalanche field, buried under about six feet of snow. And it took me years to piece this together. It was not really obvious. I mean, I was 17. I didn't, I didn't think about much at the time, but... If I had gone with them on that second run, 100% chance I'd be dead. I mean, the the avalanches can be like tsunamis, just a ridiculous amount of force and power. Nobody can survive it. And then so when I look back, the decision to not go was a completely brainless, mindless, thoughtless decision. I did not weigh the pros and cons. I didn't do a risk analysis. It was just one of a thousand other decisions I made that day. You guys go do it. I'm going to go do something else. And in hindsight, it's the most important decision that I ever made in my life by an order of magnitude. And I think everyone has some version of that story, whether you know it or not. Maybe it's like you left for work at 7.53 this morning, but if you left at 7.52, you would have been killed in a car accident or something like that. There's all these completely brainless decisions that can utterly change everything. For good and bad. Like for a lot of people, how they met their spouse was like a dumb, brainless decision, too. Some of these stories have very happy endings. But I think when you piece together how fragile the past is, you realize how fragile the future is going to be, too. And then you don't fool yourself into thinking that you know what's going to happen in the next five years or the next 30 years in your own life or in the broader economy and society because you don't. It's too fragile. When you piece together how fragile the past is, no one who is realistic about that would look at the next five years and say, I know where we're going. I know where I'm going or where the world is going. There's so many of these things that in hindsight were just dumb, brainless decisions that utterly change the future. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder
0: so so you know like Nassim Taleb talks about like black swans a lot right and 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 it's really like we live in a world where it's like, oh, that's never, that's never going to happen. But yet we live in a world where there's more and more black swans happening. There, there's, you know, the, the, the only like certainty is that there will be change. Or there will be unexpected items. We can use like COVID for example, right? Like, like the world that shouldn't have happened, but yet there's, there's like a, well, there's a pretty high chance that you're going to have a, a plague of some sort every hundred years. And lo and behold, we had one. Everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Right? So what are your thoughts like around how do people think about that? Or how do you maybe think about that when it comes to like living life? Because I think that there's really two schools of thought that happen there. There's worrying about things that haven't happened and living through the pain of things that may never happen. And then the other part's just being like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go get after life and I'll deal with the problems as they arise and I'll get good at dealing with problems. What's your approach or what's your thought process around that?
1: I think I, I probably fall somewhere in between where it's like, I mean, you, you mentioned Talib. Another great quote from Taleb they use in the book is invest in preparedness and not prediction. Yeah. Don't pretend that you can predict the next crisis, but prepare for whatever the next crisis might be financially, socially, psychologically, knowing that with 100% chance something really bad is going to happen to you or the world or both in the next five years or probably the next year. And you don't know what it's going to be. It might be a recession. It might be another pandemic. It might be a terrorist attack. Nobody knows. But the world is fragile. And there's never any significant period of time in which the world does not break. I think historically, once a decade, the world breaks, where for virtually everyone, they wake up one day and they realize that the world they thought they lived in is very different. September 11th was obviously that. COVID was that. Pearl Harbor. There's all these events where it's like shaking events. It's usually about once per decade.
0: And so in that world... Yeah, well, let me, let me, let me jump in there because like,
1: well, no, finish your thought. And then I got a question on that. Sorry. No, I, was, I, was, I just, in, in that world, it pushes you more towards a humility about what you can predict, but also just more room for error in your finances, in your careers, in your relationships, knowing that things are not like very likely not going to be as stable as you want them to be. So have a giant room for error for these surprises that you can't even envision knowing that they're going to be part of your future.
0: What it, like so I was gonna using the ten year rule and I, I agree with you I, I used to be a person that was like must control outcome you know like just like I, I call it white knuckle just white knuckling through trying to control outcomes and I just turned forty a couple years ago and I was like yeah this is like kind of miserable you know like trying to control every outcome and there there it's a little bit about just surfing the wave right like you're, all right like I'm just gonna get to your point I'm gonna I'm not going to go out and go and not wear a wetsuit when it's, you know, 45 degree water. I'll wear a wetsuit. I'll prepare for a little bit of cold, right? Maybe I'll wear a little skull cap. But I'm also not going to like over-prepare knowing that like that's not going to solve the problem either. If I want to go surf, I'm going to surf. But when we look at like things like GFC, for instance, right? You graduated college in 08, 07. I was actually running a subprime mortgage lender. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so that was like my, my you know. four, yeah, yeah. Right. Totally. Like, like I, I, I literally like almost went bankrupt in like 90 days in that business. But, but what's funny was I, I had said, I said, well, Lehman Brothers got it wrong too. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the number one mortgage lender in the United States got it wrong. I, I always joked I was in good company right when my business blew up. What like what when you think of a business like that or like a moment like that, which is less you know not nine eleven. I remember when I was watching the screens working at a finance job, essentially at six in the morning, watching planes fly into a building. That that is about as black swan as you can get, right? Um, whereas maybe GFC is less black swanish because you're like, well, you know, they're making bad bets that people are kind of dogpiling into through derivatives and stuff like that. What, what do you consider like? Like a more of a do you ever think of things as like that's a gray swan versus a black swan like how do you think of, of those things
1: I think in general, people get too tied up in the actual semantics of of the word i think I think just risks that you can't see coming is what whether it was a black or a gray gray or a white swan. Talib makes this point that Covid was not a black swan because look i mean. Bill Gates gave a Ted talk in 2015, when he said the biggest societal risk we face is a viral pandemic. Now he didn't know that it was going to be called COVID and it was going to hit in 2020. There's the details, but it was not impossible to see that that was, that was at at, at least a likelihood, which I think you can't say for a lot of other things. I don't know if you could say that about nine 11, although even nine 11, like there's a, you know, the world trade center was bombed by, uh, Al-Qaeda operatives in 1993. So I think for a lot of this, even if you know that something might be a risk and is at least a possibility, if not a likelihood, knowing the magnitude and knowing what you should do about it is a completely different thing. And knowing the timing of it is a completely different thing. And that that gets back to me about like, rather than assuming that you can predict the next crisis of when it's going to hit, like, oh, I think we're going to have a recession next year. So I'm going to change my investing strategy. That I think is, is largely BS for the huge majority of people. It's rather it's being prepared all the time for anything to happen, knowing that when it happens you're not going to see it coming until the moment it's here I think that's 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 the bigger thing here
0: yeah, I totally agree what do you um you know you tell a story in the book which was one of my favorite stories in the book about like talking about like planning right it, which is Harry Houdini and his his death. I would love if you, you you gave a little bit of tidbit on that because that that i literally like I was like, oh my god a, I never knew it and b i just thought it, I thought it kind of speaks sp- specifically to what we're talking about right now.
1: Yeah, so Houdini of course was like the world's foremost authority at surviving cr- crazy risks. He could like, you know, wrap himself in chains and put himself in a coffin and throw himself in a river and and escape and like that'd be great. He also had this trick that he did in every show, which was at the end of the show he would invite the largest man onto stage and he would tell that man to punch him in the stomach as hard as he could. Houdini was not a big guy. Uh, but he was a former amateur boxer. And his like, claim to fame was he could flex his, his solar plexes in a way that could absorb any punch from anybody. So people, you'd get like a six foot five guy, just wail on him and he wouldn't even budge. And people loved it. And so one day after one of these shows, he invites a group of college students back to meet him back in the dressing room. One of the students was a guy named Robert Whitehead. And Robert Whitehead walked up to Houdini unannounced and just started wailing on his stomach. Houdini was sitting on a couch and just started punching the stomach. He didn't mean any harm. He wasn't trying to beat the guy up. He thought he was just like recreating the trick that he just saw. But Houdini was not prepared for this. He wasn't flexing his stomach. And so he immediately like drops to the ground and he's, over, he's overwhelmed in pain. And Whitehead like apologizes to him like, I'm so sorry. I thought I was just doing the trick. And Houdini says, I was not prepared to be punched. Like that's, that's the whole trick is that I, I'm prepared for it. I can flex. Houdini wakes up the next morning. He's completely doubled over in pain. His appendix had ruptured uh, or his spleen maybe uh, had had ruptured uh, almost certainly from the punch the night before. And he died later that day from this injury. So there's this irony of like Houdini could survive any risk that he threw himself because he was prepared for it. But the one thing he's not prepared for, which is just like a skinny little kid's punch to the stomach, kills him. And so that is like, the biggest risk is what you don't see coming. It's not the biggest. It's not like the strongest thing that's going to hit you. It's not the biggest torment that's going to hit. You. It's just what you're not prepared for. That's going to do the most damage 10 times out of 10.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 it's so interesting. Cause it kind of goes into this concept of, of certainty, right? People wanting to know what's going to happen. And, you know, you talk a lot in the book around, um, that people don 't want accuracy, they want certainty. Can you kind of like talk about that a little bit because I think this is actually a really good example of of hey, like he didn 't see it coming and and it the demise, it was the end it was like who would ever have thought that that's what would have killed this guy right yeah. yeah but 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 yeah, i'd love to hear your thoughts on this like what do you mean by that when you say that people don 't want accuracy, they want certainty
1: look if you want really good financial advice, you want someone who's going to come to you and say for example, there's a 53% chance of a recession in, in the next year, I'm just making that number up, but someone who speaks in probabilities, but that's like, that should be what you want, but that's not what actually people want. What the, who they actually gravitate towards is a person on TV who says 100% chance of a recession, nothing you can do about it. It's going to destroy the economy. It's coming at us. If not, we're already there. That's who, that's who gets your attention. And the reason why is because what people actually want, they don't want to know what the future is going to be. They want to reduce the uncertainty that they have in their head. Uncertainty is really painful and you want to get it out of your brain as soon as possible, not knowing what the future is going to bring. And the guy who says there's a 53% chance of recession does nothing to reduce the uncertainty in your brain. If anything, it accentuates it. You're like the world is more uncertain now than it was before. But the person who says there is going to be a recession, even if he's full of shit, he just reduced the uncertainty in your head and you feel better because of it. So that's who's going to get your attention. And in the real world, how people judge uh, forecasts is just black and white. Were you right or were you wrong? And a good example of this is Nate Silver, the statistician, who in 2016, during the presidential election, he said the day before the election, I think he said, I believe the numbers were, he said, 80% chance Hillary Clinton wins, 20% chance that Trump wins. As we now know, Trump won. And a lot of people said Nate Silver was wrong. And, and Nate Silver's response was like, no, no, I gave him a one in five chance. Like I, it was still a minority, but I gave him a one. You would not play Russian roulette with a one in five chance because you know it might happen. Right, But people, but people don't judge you like that. It's, it's black or white. Like, did you say this was going to happen and did it happen? And it's just like that. So someone who accurately, wisely speaks in probability is, is not what people want to hear. People want to hear certainty because that's what reduces the uncertainty that they have in their own head.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's like the, the there's a bit of like um, you know we're wired this way like the negativity bias right where people are like, hey, uh, just tell me tell me how bad it's gonna be. I just want to know. And then you know even though it may or may not happen, I, it's it is interesting to watch folks. Even I think the Nate Silver example is a perfect example because to your point, like. There's no way Trump's going to win. You're like, I got a gun. There's five chambers. I'm putting one bullet in, and it's the exact same. And you you wouldn't play that game. To your point, it's it's such a good example. And people um, think it's
1: a cop out because here's the thing: if Nate Silver said there is a one percent chance is going to win that Trump is going to win, and 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 then he went on to win, people like uh, Nate Silver could still say that he was he was right. Like he gave it a one percent chance, and that's what happened. It's just very difficult for people to gauge your accuracy. When you are wisely speaking about probabilities rather than certainties. Well, do you think that, do you think it's because of like
0: the, is this a human nature? Look, I'm like a probability guy. So for me, I'm like, yeah, what is one in five? Like that's the, there's a chance, there's a pretty good chance. Like that's, 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 listen, if you told me that there's a one in five chance I'm going to be a trillionaire, I'd be pumped. I wouldn't act like that's zero, right? I, I would Listen, I would play lotto every single day if that was the odds, right? As would anybody right. else. Do you think it's that most people just aren't good at odds? Like, what is, what is What do you think it is around the human condition that creates these outcomes?
1: Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's, it's very difficult to think about multiple possibilities of what the future could be. It could be X, it could be Y, it could be Z. People don't want that. They just want to just tell me what it's going to be. I, I use the other, the other example in the book of the show um, – Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is, is driving around with Jimmy Fallon and uh, they're driving in a very old car and the car doesn't have airbags. And Jimmy Fallon says, Jerry, does it worry you that this car doesn't have airbags? And Jerry says, no. And be honest, how often in your life have you actually needed an airbag? Which is like, it's, it's, it's supposed to be funny because the answer is like, no, but you have an airbag for the very low probability that it's going to save your life, not because you need it every day. But I think that's a perfect example of how most people think. Like they're not attuned to low probability risks in the slightest. And therefore, when these things occur, whether it's 9-11 or covert or whatnot, they're utterly taken aback and knocked on their feet, uh, knocked off their feet. And because their their entire world is thinking about binary, yes or no, black and white, and yep. only thinking about the high probability events that are going to occur. Because it's easier and more comfortable to think that way. And I, it's always been like that. And I think it always will be.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, there's a concept in the book you talk a lot about, um, which is best story wins. I'd love if you talked a little bit about that, explain what that is and, and, and like, where do, you, where do you come up with this and, and how do you think people can apply that in, in trying to, I don't know, take, take over whatever they're trying to take over in the world?
1: Yeah, I think it's always the case in almost any, any field, any career that the person who gets the most attention and the most success is not necessarily the person with the right answer or the best answer. Uh, it's the person who tells the best story. That's who gains people's attention. And you get them nodding along and they follow you and you gain the biggest following, get the most success. It's just whoever tells the, be- the best story. Where did I come – where did I start thinking about this? I think one of the reasons, one of the things that came – so I'm, I'm in the book industry now. And one of the best-selling books of our, of our time is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, yeah. which a lot of people will uh, – don't have the best reviews of that book because, look, even by Harari's own admission, there's nothing new in there. He's, he's writing about topics that people have known about for a long time that other anthropologists covered way before he did. So a lot of readers and other anthropologists are like, there's nothing new in there. But the book sold like 30 million copies because it's really well-written. It's a great story. Totally. And, and if you are the kind of person who is like shaking your fist, you're like, there's nothing new. It's not that good of a book. You're missing it. It's sold well because it's so well-written. That's it. Here's what's crazy about it too. He wrote the book in Hebrew. The book, the, the version that we have was translated. It's just the best translation that's ever happened ever. And, and, and so I, but I think there are a lot of examples about that. I'm a huge Ken Burns fan the, who makes documentaries. Yeah, yeah. Ken Burns is, an, is another example. His documentary on the Civil War uh, came out in I think 1990 or, or 91. It was watched by more Americans that year than watched the Super Bowl. Wow. And what's crazy about it is that the Civil War is like the most documented event in US history. The, Ken Burns did not release new information about what happened in the war. Everyone knows how it ends, everyone knows what happened in between. What he did better than anyone before or since is told an amazing story. And Ken Burns has talked a lot about this. Some of what's so important about his documentaries is the background music. It's not even it's not even the pictures what you're doing, it's the background music that puts you in the mood. And he told this amazing story one time. He said in every documentary he's made, he will adjust the script so that the narrator says a specific word at the moment, a specific beat in the background music hits. And I was just like, no other, docu- no other historian is doing that. And that's why Ken Burns can be watched by damn near every American, while some other history professor at some other university is getting nobody's attention. It's just Ken Burns is a way better storyteller than them.
0: So, so so in like thinking of like the theme of the book is, is, is really the lesson there that, that if you want people to follow, like this is a, this is really that we as humans, we, we follow the stories, right? That we, we are attracted to the stories that that this is how, I mean, obviously before there was written history, this is how history came about was through storytelling. Is that really the lesson that, that you're kind of trying to impart?
1: Yeah. I think there's two things. Like one, that's how other people gain attention. So if you are the kind of person who thinks the best answer wins, you're going to be really frustrated with how the world works because it's not the person who tells the best story wins. Now, sometimes the person who tells the best story also has the best answer. Steve Jobs was probably in that, like made the best technology and marketed better than, than anybody else. Uh, totally. So sometimes those people have both, but there's also a lot of areas in life, particularly like politics, where the person who's getting ahead sometimes has some of the worst answers about what to do, but they're very persuasive and they say exactly what people want to hear. Same thing happens in finance. The people who go on TV and tell you how to invest your money are sometimes giving the worst advice you can possibly imagine, but they're very persuasive when they give that terrible advice. And so that's, that's a lot of it. The other area is if you're an entrepreneur or whatnot, if you think that you need to reinvent the wheel to, to come up with a new idea, you don't. There's so much low hanging fruit of taking what is already there, what's already existing, and telling a better story around it. Like, you don't need to invent something brand new. You can just take something that already exists and do a better job appealing to people's emotions for there to be so much opportunity right there in front of you.
0: I love that, man. It's so true. It's so true in business. I mean, you look at it like, there's so many examples of that. I mean, I could go down the list. I mean, Chick-fil-A, In N Out Burger, Costco. There's nothing new with any of those three businesses. And they crush, every one of them crushes because the story that they built around their brand is interesting, right?
1: Virgin, I think all this. I think like, there's a lot of a lot of this, like when Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone, Nokia and Motorola and Microsoft were building better phones. At the time they were better phones. The iPhone was just way had a story behind it. And Steve totally. Jobs was so good at convincing you that this was cool. And this was the and this was a better product that even if there were some certain features that Nokia was making that were actually superior to the iPhone, the iPhone was the cool one. that, that was a story that people wanted to totally. attach to.
0: Totally, yeah, I just saw the Blackberry movie and and you're like you, you forget that Blackberry had forty five percent of the market like like yeah. if like almost one out of every two people had a blackberry. I had a blackberry before I, I mean. I didn't love it. I'd won. I liked it was too big. But um but yeah, that's such a good example. And and I think those all support, you know, this idea that Best Story wins. And 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 some to the detriment of, you know, some are negative, right? Depending on your viewpoints, especially in politics, right? Yeah. Uh, you see this happen all the time, whether it's a, a position or whether it's a candidate. Um so I told I totally agree with oh, I mean- that.
1: To, to that, I'll tell a, a quick story about this one that's always just is one of those stories that I read that just knocks you on your ass and you start piecing together how the world works. There's a really good book called What We Knew, which is a book that interviews German civilians in the 1940s. And the book just says, what did you know about the Holocaust, about the war? These are just German civilians in town. And and one of the women, uh, just a German civilian in the 40s, she starts going into the detail about why the Germans supported Hitler. And she says, you have to remember, in the 1920s, the German economy fell apart. Hyperinflation, we lost everything. Hitler came around and said, I have a better idea. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to give you dignity. It was such an appealing message to the people who had no hope that at least a meaningful amount of Germans said, sign me up. I'm I'm there for it. He just told a way better story. And he told the story that a lot of Germans wanted to hear at the time. This person, uh, so that story I do tell in, in Same as Ever. And that person went on to say, "Like, look, it, it obviously completely spun utterly out of control." But at the time, she said, "If you are in a desperate spot, and somebody comes along and tells you that they have a better way, you are not going to say no to that person."
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. If you like, uh, if you overlap Sapiens, right? In in that book, he talks about how the cost of war, as opposed to the riches and spoils it brought, were so in favor of going and doing war that if you're Hitler, you're like, "All right." I'm going to build national pride because to your point, there were so like the national pride in Germany after world war one was decimated. Right. They got crushed and they had, they had to give up tons of power and money and all that whatnot. And then you're like, okay, let's just look at this from, and again, everyone knows how this story ends. It's a terrible situation, terrible, you know, everything about him coming to power was terrible. But to your point, like, yeah, like if I'm if I'm in his shoes, I'm like, hey, I know how, how I can totally revive this economy. I'm just gonna go take over tons of countries and and take that momentum and roll it roll it because back then the cost of war, as opposed to the productivity and outcome I got from it, was in favor of me committing war than compared to today, right? So super yeah. interesting.
1: I think w- one of the takeaways is like. There are so many historical examples of economic collapse kind of leading to social collapse. Because when there's economic collapse, people become very susceptible to any kind of narrative from anyone who steps up and says, I have a better way forward. Totally.
0: Yeah. Because what do they have to lose, right? Like, hey, my life sucks right now anyway. Like, Exactly. What do I have to lose?
1: <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: you know, that, that, I, I know we're running a little short on time here, but uh, I wanted to touch on one last part of the book. And then we always do the greatness question. I forgot to give you the preface before the show that we do the greatness question. We'll so end on that. Um, but you talk about a, a concept of calm plants the seed for crazy in the book. Ta- tell us a little bit about that, because I thought that, that really stood out to me.
1: It's just this idea that what creates volatility in the economy and a lot of areas in the world is the stability that preceded it. So they think about the economy. If the economy is strong and people are optimistic, very naturally, they will go into debt because that's the normal thing you do when you're optimistic about your future. You lever up. Now, when they go into debt, the economy becomes unstable. And when the economy is unstable, you're eventually going to have a recession. So you piece all that together. And it was the stability. It was the lack of recessions that caused the next recession. Calm plants the seeds of crazy. It's the same in the stock market. If people think the stock market never goes down, they very rationally put more money into it. They invest more money. That makes valuations go up. And when valuations go up, you're eventually going to have a crash. It's like it, one leads to the other. The same is true in reverse. Like When the economy collapses, then the seeds of its revival are already planted because you have panicked-induced innovation for companies trying to survive by coming up with something new. You have lower valuations, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So just understanding the normal cyclicality of these things. Is really important because whenever there is a recession or a bear market, it's normal and natural to say, the economy broke and I need to find who broke it and punish them. And right. but I, I think when you, when you take a step back, you're like, no, this is an unavoidable part. If I, I, I hope to be participating in this economy for the next 50 years, I know unavoidable, 100% chance there are going to be a dozen more recessions, bear markets, screw ups, etc. It's completely unavoidable. So I think understanding the cyclicality of why these things happen just makes dealing with them a little bit more palatable.
0: I think that the, and that concept comes full circle, right? In, in that you're not going to be able to plan that. When I hear people say that there's going to be an economy, to your point earlier, I'm like, this person has no fucking idea what they're talking about. Yes, maybe there's some economic indicators that suggest that, but we, you never know. We never have the same recession twice. But to your point er, in the earliest part of this conversation is, all we can control is being prepared for, for prepared as best as we possibly can for that. And I think that that's, I think I'd really love that concept because I think it's, I at least got some comfort where I'm like, you know. I can only control what I can and I can't control the world around me. I can't control, you know, what's happening right now in the middle East. I can't control who's going to win the next election. I can't control, you know, what's going to happen in the economy, but I can control as best as I possibly can to be prepared. So I I thought that that was a really, really great concept in the book. And and I love the calm plants, the seed of crazy. And, And when you think about, the last let's just talk, even talk about the last run-up you had gfc happens you got a sharing economy that comes out of it you have a massive innovation with like uber and airbnb you have like bitcoin came out out of that time frame right and then and now we're in the, the you have this huge bull run that came out of that and here we are right now with covid and we're post-covid and we're in this kind of this squishy in between time so i do think that there's you know what's what does Buffett say? He says you know like uh, like about a good crisis, right? Uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste, right? right. It, it's it's kind of to your point that that breaking a, that 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 breaking in the system, that breaking in the economy, that creates some inefficiencies that people can go in then and, and fill. So uh, I love that idea.
1: Thank you. Now, of course, you always want to make sure that you are one of the survivors of that breakage. You don't want to be the person who's going bankrupt yourself. You want to be to be able to endure (laughs) that carnage. And those are the people who are going to come out stronger from it. Yeah.
0: You got to stay in the game. I always say that, man, you got to stay in the game. So oh man, Morgan, I could have you here for another hour. This was just like, we didn't even talk about the psychology of money, which is an amazing book uh, in itself, but the new books, super cool. And I'm really pumped for all the success that you have and are going to continue to have. So. Why don't we do this? Let's do the greatness question, and then we'll we'll tell folks where they can get the book. Does that work for you? Let's do it. I'm ready? All right. So um, here, at the greatness machine. We are all about creating greatness in the world. So, question: Our greatness question is this, and I'll give you a second to think about it. What is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life, and how did you overcome it?
1: Oh, I think I I don't I don't need a second to think about it. I think I would say um, understanding that there is a difference between what society tells you you should want and what you actually want for yourself deep down is really important. Because what I want out of my life, Darius, might be different from what you want. Not because we disagree or we're smarter than one another, just everybody's different. And so by and large, society tells everybody that they should want the same thing. And I think there are so, the majority of people don't actually want that thing. That thing being, I want to be rich and prestigious and famous and a big house and a nice car everyone's different. So for me, light, a lot of things in life clarified. And I think I became happier when I said, look, this, is thing that, this thing that I'm supposed to want, I don't actually want it. What I want is this thing over here, which is independence and autonomy and spending time with my friends and family. That's what I actually want. And so once I just said, I don't want to play that game anymore. I want to play my own game and I'm going to get really good at my game. And I love my game. That to me was the barrier that was overcome that added a lot of fulfillment to my life.
0: I love that man. I I can't remember who said it. They said everyone should become rich and famous once in their life to realize that they don't want it. (laughs) So Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just I heard that. It just made me think of that man, Morgan. What a badass! I love you, man. I love I love the book. I love everything you're saying. Everyone needs to go out there and support all all the things you're working on, including your podcast, the Morgan Housel podcast. So we're gonna put all that stuff in the show notes. But uh, the book is same as ever: a guide to what never changes, and also. Go get the psychology of money. I love that book as well. Uh, where can folks get the books? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more about all things Morgan?
1: Uh, you know where, where they buy books: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Border, you know, uh, 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 whatever the one is at, at at the airports. Wherever books are sold, I guess you'd say. <laughs> I also spend a lot of my time on Twitter. My handle is my first and last name: Morgan Housel. Awesome. So we'll make sure we put them...
0: I think you almost busted a, a Borders books.
1: I, I almost said Borders. The, the, one, the, one at the, the one at the airport, I, I forget, I forget what, it's, what it was called, the airport bookstore. Borders, yeah. God bless them. We, 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 we certainly miss you, Borders.
0: Yeah. We, we, big shout out to Borders. Uh, Morgan, <laughs> man, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you here at The Greatness Machine, man, and wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much, Darius. All right. Everybody, go get the book. Go support Morgan. Sign up. We're going to put all this stuff in the show notes. Until next time, peace out. We love you. leave us a review tell us what you love most about this particular episode we love getting the reviews we love to see what you guys love most and if this particular episode you know made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life print screen share it with them leaders are the best givers and after all we're all here to support and grow with each other and in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one.
1: lover.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Leila Hermozzi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward.